Welcome to the Real Self University podcast. I'm Eva Shea, your host and director of practice development at Real Self. My guest today is Dr. Umang Mehta, and he's a facial plastic surgeon in California, and I believe you're based in the Bay Area. Can you just tell us a little bit about your practice? Yeah, absolutely. So I'm a solo facial plastic and reconstructive surgeon in private practice. I'm uh, located in Atherton, California, which is just next to Palo Alto and about 40 minutes from San Francisco. Do you see self-driving cars around there? Yeah, I do actually. Yeah, not uncommonly. I've only seen them on Silicon Valley, the show. Yeah, I've seen a couple of Teslas where the, the drivers are seem to be asleep at the wheel. That's, uh, really? That's a little scary. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> or at least not paying attention. Yeah, I don't know if I could handle that. How long have you been in practice on your own there now? So I started my practice in 2009. So this will be our 11th year this summer. So you were kind of at the beginning of that recession. In 2009, you started in the middle of a recession. So this whole virus situation probably feels a little bit similar to that. Yeah. I mean, I think when I started out just, you know, being right out of fellowship, I basically went and started my own private practice. And so I wasn't part of a group or anything. And so I guess I didn't know any different. That was just what I thought was normal. But yeah, when I first started out, I mean, there'd be weeks where I had only one or two or three patients on the the schedule. And uh, it just took a while to build. This was really pre-social media. So 2009, Facebook was only just at its inflection point. And obviously, Mm -hmm. there was no Instagram yet. Real Self was one or two years old. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if you could even participate on Real Self until 2009. Yeah. It might have even been after that. So we we weren't up and running yet for you anyway. Yeah, I think I've been with you guys since 2010, I believe. I'd I'd have to look back, but yeah, Mm -hmm. yeah, that sounds about right. So you did something a little different when you came out of the gate and you went straight for a really small niche. Why did you decide to do that and what was it? Yeah, so the way I started my practice up is I rented space from a plastic surgeon named Jane Weston, who's a phenomenal, like a very talented surgeon here in the Bay Area. And she and I connected when I was a fellow. I saw that she had actually posted an ad at one point. It was kind of funny. She had posted this ad something like eight or nine years ago, and it was just floating out there in cyberspace. And I saw this. It said sharedmedicalofficespace.com was the name of the website. And literally a couple months later, it was gone. It, it wasn't there anymore. But I called up the office and they were very confused. But they said, sure, we'll, we'll put you through to Jane. And so she and I connected and she came down to LA for a conference. So we, we got a chance to chat when I was a fellow. and. So then I basically rented space in her office for about two and a half years or so. And then as I got busier and as as she got busier and expanded, then it just made sense for me to move into my own space. So our practices were independent, but it was basically an office sharing arrangement and uh, sharing some of the overhead and, you know, that sort of thing. You two might have set the record for the ad that took the longest to actually yield a result. (laughs) That's That's right. (laughs) really, really strange. Yeah. So it was a nice way to get going because it allowed me to really build my own practice the way I wanted it to be, but keep my expenses low. So initially, her staff was helping me out with you know answering the phone and those kinds of scheduling patients. And uh, but I was doing much of it myself. And then about a year in is when I started hiring my own staff. So I started off with one person and then grew to one and a half. And then around when I moved into my own space, that was the beginning of 2012. And so that's been eight and a half years now, approximately. And at that point, that's when I started bringing on additional staff. So, so right now I have three full-time employees and myself. So I have a, an aesthetic nurse, a front office coordinator, and a back office coordinator. And both my front and back office coordinators are also uh, estheticians. So they have a chance to be 
a provider, do some treatments, advise on skincare, and then they also have administrative roles. But yeah, as far as talking about a niche practice, so I'd always loved rhinoplasty. I think that's what got me excited about facial plastic surgery in the first place. And initially, I was doing everything in facial plastic surgery. So I was doing facelifts, eyelids, you know, pretty much the whole gamut of facial plastic surgery. I never did any body work. It was like that for about five years or so. And then at some point, I was getting just so busy with rhinoplasty, I decided to drop most of the rest of it. I still, still do occasionally you know, a chin implant or liposuction of the neck or an otoplasty, but I would say 98% of my practice is rhinoplasty now. And revisions? You do revision too? Yeah, a lot of revisions. I'd say probably yeah. 30 to 40% of my practice is revision rhinoplasty. So I do, I do a lot of rib and ear cartilage harvest for the nose too. You're one of those rare unicorns that we hear about and don't run into very often. I work with a lot of people who don't know doctors very well. And so I find myself saying things like, doctors who only do rhinoplasty are really special and they're really unique. (laughs) You don't run into them very often. So you're one of those. (laughs) Yeah, it's fun. I mean, I think what I like about being so focused, first off, I think being in the Bay Area, you have access to people that are really specialized and really excellent at one surgery. There's enough volume to go around that, you know, I have a a colleague who's the Asian eyelid specialist of, you know, the Bay Area. I have colleagues who, you know, do phenomenal facelifts or who are known for their breast surgery or their tummy tucks or whatever. So I think from that standpoint, you know, when you're in a large metropolitan area with so many excellent surgeons, there's enough volume that you can pick one thing and be really good at it. And, you know, I, I think that's the advice I'd give somebody starting out is if, you know, if there's something that you feel really passionate about within the field, often when you decide just to specialize in that, patients love it. I think it really adds a, a level of confidence in you that they're getting somebody who's, you know, focused and a specialist and is not a jack of all trades. But the trade-off is that there'll be patients who come in the door who are seeking a facelift or eyelid surgery, and I refer those patients out to other people, or maybe looking for a, you know, combination. Maybe they want to have their nose and their eyes done. And in that case, what I'll do is coordinate their surgery with another surgeon. So I'll do the nose while they do the eyes, for example. That's that's not uncommon in my practice too. So you're actually turning people away mm-hmm. if they're not within the scope that you want to stick to. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and I think, you know, for me, I want my patients to get A plus results every single time or as close as I can deliver to that. So I think that it makes sense to really specialize in something and, you know, make sure that you're continuing to evolve your own skills and giving out the best possible results that you can. And, and I think that leads to just more and more patients. The moment I decide to specialize in rhinoplasty, suddenly my rhinoplasty volume increased astronomically. I've heard from many of your colleagues that BDD sort of, or body dysmorphic disorder sort of runs rampant among rhinoplasty patients. And I'm curious if that's something you're seeing too. Well, I think what I find is that computer imaging is a really useful tool for me to help to identify who's a good candidate for surgery and who's not. I don't think that BDD is necessarily higher in the rhinoplasty population. I don't know if I agree with that, but I do think that it's important to counsel patients about what's possible and what's realistic given their anatomy. So for example, I recently had a patient who was Asian who was seeking a rhinoplasty. And so I did computer imaging. I showed her what I thought was possible, made you know three different versions of her nose, and then emailed those to her at the end of the consultation. And then she came back and was sending me photos of you know Instagram models who had a completely different facial anatomy, different ethnic background, 
And I was looking at them and I wrote back and I said, you know what, it's just not possible to achieve those results given your anatomy. And I redirected her to the computer images that we had made. And ultimately, you know, we decided it just wasn't a good fit. And that's okay. You know, bottom line is I want patients to be happy with their outcomes. And so that's where I think if the patient and I together can agree on the computer imaging, then I think to me, that's a really big factor in them being happy afterwards. Then my goal is obviously to get it as close as possible to the computer imaging. And the vast majority of the time I can or get it 90% of the way there or possibly better than the computer morphing as well. But I do find that's really useful. I know a lot of surgeons don't do computer morphing, and I think that's a mistake. I, I think for rhinoplasty in particular, it's really helpful. Do you happen to recall if you're you know, looking at her Instagram images that she is showing you as examples, if even those photos were filtered or doctored? Well, yeah. I mean, I think that's a really valid point. I, I think you have to consider that even the photos that, whether it's Instagram models or celebrities that they're putting up may not be their actual photos that they've been touched up or morphed or those kinds of things. And then, you know, I think unfortunately in our industry also, there are certainly surgeons who I suspect may be, you know, sort of photoshopping their own results or, you know, those kinds of things, which is quite unfortunate and quite dishonest as well. And so I think that that's something that the integrity of our profession kind of depends on being honest and upfront with our results and showing patients that are realistic and results that are achievable surgically. Because at the end of the day, if you're you know, putting up fake results on Instagram, but then the actual results you're delivering are much worse, that's not going to help your practice. So you've also worked in Beverly Hills. I think you were there for quite a long time. You said Los Angeles early. I know you were. Yeah, I was there as a fellow, actually. So, so 2008 is when I finished up my ENT residency. So, so going back, I uh, did my undergraduate at Stanford, which is why I'd always wanted to move back to the Bay Area. Then I was at Ohio State for medical school. And then I spent five years in St. Louis doing my ENT residency. And then my fellowship was in facial plastic surgery. That was in Beverly Hills. I was at the Lasky Clinic uh, with Andrew Frankel. So while I was a fellow there, I was also working over at USC Medical Center and teaching the residents and medical students how to do rhinoplasty while training with Dr. Frankel. And so, yeah, so I got to enjoy that Beverly Hills life. Yes. I know um, Lasky is a very busy practice. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So you probably got to see a lot of patients there. Do you feel like the Beverly Hills patient was different from the Bay Area patient at all? So yeah, my very first day as a fellow, when Dr. Frankel was getting me oriented, we stepped across the street to the, the Peninsula Hotel, which overlooks the, the Lasky Clinic. And we're sitting poolside and you know just enjoying a beautiful lunch. And uh, I thought, okay, this is, uh, I'm not in St. Louis anymore. This is, uh, this is pretty cool. But uh, anyway, yeah, but we definitely had you know, a lot of celebrity clients that came through. There was a secret back entrance where they would come in to avoid the paparazzi and that sort of thing. I think at the end of the day, you know, people are people. I think once you've been in that Beverly Hills lifestyle, then you're not as nervous when you come up to the Bay Area. And if there's, you know, the CEO of a you know, big tech company or a celebrity here that comes in because you've, you've already gotten past that as a fellow. It was really a phenomenal fellowship. I, I think what's neat about rhinoplasty and facial plastic surgery in particular is it's like an apprenticeship. You know, you can think of your fellowship director is almost like the way fathers taught their sons or mothers taught their daughters a craft. And it's almost like your director is like your mentor or your, your father in this. And so you almost develop a lineage. So Dr. Frankel trained with Frank Kamer doing the deep plane facelifts, and he trained with Dean Toriyumi doing his open structural rhinoplasty. So it's, there's almost a lineage. And even though I don't do things exactly the same way as I did as a fellow, the, 
DNA is still there. And so it's, it's a neat way to kind of think about the mentorship aspect of what we do. And I, I try to pass that on now. I'm actually part of two different fellowships, training fellows at both UCSF and also Harry Middleman's fellowship in Los Altos. And then Sachin Parikh and David Lieberman are part of that fellowship too. So, and you're carrying on the lineage. Yeah, exactly. So the, <laughs> so the, the residents and med students and fellows that I get to interact with, I sort of teach them uh, what I've learned. And so it's, yeah, exactly. It's like passing on that DNA. I like that. I think, you know, who else is like that is classical musicians. And there's an interesting parallel there. And one that I often see, I hadn't considered that one, but when there's no music to play and there's no concerts to be had, that's really similar to having no patience and no one to operate on. Uh, that's right. We're all kind of in that boat right now. But <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah, that's the one I usually think of. But the other one is that lineage thing. That's interesting. So let's go back to Instagram for a minute. You mm-hmm. have about 8,000 followers. Mm-hmm. A lot of times we encourage doctors, even if they feel like they're late to the game with something like social media, that it's not too late because really people look for you in these places. And if you're not there, even if your colleagues were there three years ago and you weren't, right. it's not about them. It's about your patients finding you now. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So you started later than most, but you've made it to 8,000, which is more than most people have. Are you enjoying doing Instagram? <laughs> like, do, you, do you actually find it interesting? Yeah, I do, actually. It, it is kind of a fun outlet for me. And I think I enjoy the creativity of it. I, I enjoy, you know, the interaction with patients and with other doctors and nurses and PAs and estheticians, people in my field. It's kind of a neat way to interact with each other and just find out what we're doing and the results that I see out there. Often it's a great way for me to know, hey, in New York, here's the facelift guy. Like his results are really wonderful. And I like the way he explains things, you know, those kinds of things. Mm -hmm. So I think it's helpful to develop a community and a network among us providers, but also a really great way to interact with our patients too. And are you doing all of it yourself or do you have help? My staff helps me too. We all do it together. I'd say I'm doing much of it, but my staff will help me with laying out photos, creating some content, especially you know some of the skincare content, some of the injectable content. My nurse is you know doing some of the content related to Botox and uh, laser treatments and injectables and all that too. So, so it's great to have a team effort, but it does take time. I you know I think it has to be something you enjoy doing. And we were late to the game. We started our Instagram page last January, so it's been about. 15 months or so approximately. And and I think for a long time, I kind of had the attitude of, well, social media, I don't have time for that. I'm busy enough already. And, you know, people don't really make big decisions based on social media. That's more for passing time and having fun. But your real decision is going to be based on reviews or referrals from other doctors or referrals from friends. But I think what convinced me was that we had patients that you know, wanted to tag us that were very happy with the, say their lip filler, or, you know, that sort of thing. And, and they said, Hey, you guys really need to have an Instagram page. My wife the whole time was like, why are you not on Instagram? This makes no sense. <laughs> so I think if you look at it, it really is the perfect way to showcase before and after photos and also to do educational posts. I think talking about why we do what we do. And I think patients really love both of those. How have you been able to get this kind of growth? You know, everything is relative and there's probably people who think 8,000 isn't that much, but I think when you're doing it right and you're doing it authentically and you're not doing cheating, like buying followers or <laughs> right or getting engagement from irrelevant sources, right? there are some ways to really do it right. And, and so I'm curious how you've done that. Yeah. I mean, I think the regular consistent 
content. So, you know, I, I try to post about three times a week or so on average. And, you know, my staff uh, will do stories and little things here and there. We definitely go through periods where we're more active and then other periods where we just kind of busy with life and all that. But yeah, but in general, I think good content that's posted regularly. And yeah, and I think just having a, like I said, a community of other providers, I think is nice because you support each other by liking or commenting each other's posts. And I, I think that makes a difference too. I think having that support is nice because it's also a great way to bounce ideas off each other. I think often I'll ask a question of one of my colleagues and it genuinely want to know, hey, how, why'd you do that? What approach did you use? There was an oculoplastic surgeon that I reached out to on Instagram because I saw that she'd done a video about how she applies ice on the patient's eyes during her blepharoplasties. And I thought, well, I should be doing that during my rhinoplasty. You know, so just those kinds of things. So I think it really can be a great educational resource for us as well. And so I think having that community is nice. And the more engagement and community you have amongst providers, I think that leads to more exposure on Instagram too. So more patients and more people see your posts if there's more activity. Have you thought about trying live surgery videos? I know a lot of people do it, but people are pretty opinionated about it too. Yeah, I haven't yet. I mean, a, a typical rhinoplasty takes me a while. It's about a three or four hour surgery for a, a standard open rhinoplasty. I'll usually do two in a day, but it's something I've thought about. I, I have shot some short videos. I have a resident from UCSF that came and spent some time with me and he and I did a, a chapter recently for an online rhinoplasty textbook. And so he recorded certain steps of the process. And then we wrote a chapter about those particular maneuvers. But I haven't done an entire uh, surgery. That would, it'd be interesting, but I, I don't know if that would be too long. I don't think you should put a four-hour four hour video <laughs> online. No, but you might try some short clips of what surgery looks like. Sure. Yeah. Edit those. Edit those down. Great. Yeah. Yeah. It's the video editing and stuff that I don't have time for. But yeah, I think as I get more and more involved with the fellowships, I think having a more regular, whether resident or med student or fellow, especially somebody who has interest and experience with video editing, I think then it's doable. It's just for me with the practice and then with having two kids at home and trying to sort of balance it all, I, I feel like there are limitations as far as my time goes. But it's great though. I think patients love seeing live videos. The other video they love, especially for rhinoplasty, is the reveal video where the patient mm-hmm. sees their own nose for the first time. And Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, man, it's <laughs> such a hit. Totally. I noticed that you post your kids sometimes on your Instagram, and mm-hmm. that's another area where people have strong opinions. It doesn't bother you to have your kids out there on there? No, I mean, I think it's part of who I am and part of patients and people getting to know me and my daughter now she's six and a half and she's enjoyed doing some of these videos with me like we stitched up her stuffed animal the other day uh, <laughs> that was a fun little post I did a couple of weeks ago so yeah I think things like that I think there's a balance at least from what I've heard the recommendation is you should have about 80% of your posts should be professional and maybe 20% are lifestyle or family or you know those kinds of things so I think keeping a keeping a balance like that is important it sounds reasonable yeah the posts that humanize you are the ones that people tend to really like, and, and they might not comment or hit the love button mm-hmm. on those, but they definitely have an impact. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You also have been on Real Self, I think, since 2010, really a long time. Mm-hmm. How do you use Real Self today, and how does that fit into your marketing strategy? So, for me, I think the nicest thing about Real Self is the kind of educational opportunity to reach directly to patients. So, when I started out my practice, the beginning, those weeks of having, you know, one or two patients on the schedule, I had way more time at that point. So, 
jumping on and answering rhinoplasty questions. I mean, I, I had in my second or third year out in practice, I had patients from Australia, patients from Canada, people that come from all over the US because they saw a particular question I answered on RealSelf and it just resonated with them. So I, I've always tried to talk to patients in a way where I make the consultations very educational. So I, I literally spend an hour with new patients that are coming in for a rhinoplasty consultation and we'll go through anatomy. I have all these slides. I have a flat screen TV up on my wall in the, in the office and I'll show them, okay, here's what the upper lateral cartilages are. Here's what the septum looks like. Here's what a spreader graft is, you know, those kinds of things. And I try to talk to them in a way that makes them part of the decision-making process. So they're understanding, you know, it's not just a, hey, a pat on the shoulder, like, hey, I'll fix your nose and you spend five minutes with the patient. I, I really try to make them part of the process. And I think as a result, our conversion rate's really high with consultations. But similarly, I think with real self, the opportunity when patients post questions on the site and I can answer them for them, I think that resonates with other patients. And, and I think that's been a really great source of new patients finding us for a long it time. Is. So yeah. It's yeah. very so, perceptive. So I still try to jump on and answer questions now. I probably don't do it as, as often as I did when I first started out, but I'll still answer at least a few questions a month, I would say on average. So yeah. yeah. I don't hear that rationale for answering questions from people very often, but that really is what the purpose is, is for people to get to know you and how you think. Mm -hmm. And it's not necessarily about the person who asked the question in the first place, but the ones who come along later to read what you thought. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right. Exactly. For them to just get a more educated answer to what they're looking for. And sometimes I'll, you know, I'll often redirect them. I'll say, Hey, you should really touch base with your primary surgeon because he or she would know what was done, but here's what I would suggest just broadly. And I try not to do a canned answer. I'd, I've seen some where the doctor will post the exact same answer for every yeah, for every question. Like, yeah, just defeating the purpose. Yeah, seek a board certified surgeon. But yeah, I, I try to make it very specific to that particular patient. And it doesn't take long. I mean, answering a question will take about three or four minutes, but it's worth it, I think. So mm -hmm. yeah, it's nice for exposure and nice for the patients too. So you've been home now. We've all been home for a while. You've been home now for about six weeks. Mm -hmm. And have you been doing virtual consultations? Have you kind of kept the lines open for patients to reach out? Yeah, we have. We have. So I've been doing the virtual consultations at the office just because it's a little chaotic at the house with the, with the two yeah. small kids here. So, But I'm typically going into the office about three days a week to do the virtual consultations and virtual follow-ups. And then I've had just a couple of medically necessary follow-up visits like for people that I've operated on already that I need to see in person. But the virtual consultations and the follow-ups have gone really well. I think that's going to be part of our new normal for a while. And you know, we'd done them all along for patients that were out of state or out of the country. But I think offering them more and more now is going to be a worthwhile endeavor. Mm -hmm. And I can still do about 90% of the consultation, really everything except looking in the nose. So we ask patients to email us high-resolution photos. And I'll do my computer imaging while we're doing the virtual consultation and uh, I'll show them the same slides. I just point my camera on my phone towards the screen in my office and I'll talk to them about their anatomy and what I think is going on with the inside of their nose, all that kind of thing. And literally, you know, if they need to come in for a follow-up, then I'll look inside their nose, see if they have a deviated septum and everything else I can see from the outside essentially. Sure. So, so it's the septum and the turbinates are really the only things that I can't see from the outside. You know who's great at taking photos of inside of your nose is toddlers. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> <laughs> is there yeah. anything that you've learned during this very strange time that surprised you? Like what's the most important thing you've learned during the stay at home? 
Yeah, for me, I think one of the most interesting things I saw was, so I attended the International Federation of Facial Plastic Surgery conference in Taiwan at the beginning of February. And so it was at that point, the, there had been the cases in China, but there had only been a few reported cases around the world at that point. And so at the last minute, I was debating, should I go, not go? And I had talked to some people who had just recently been to Taiwan. They said everything was very safe, very, you know, everything's tightly screened and, and all that sort of thing. So I decided to go at the last minute, I took all the precautions with the mask and the sanitizer and all that. And what I found was remarkable. So initially, the beginning of January, they closed down travel from China. That was kind of the first step. They have something like 124 points, uh, you know, action items that they took. But the, the key ones that I saw were that at every public place, there was a security guard with a thermal scanner that was checking temperatures before you entered the building. Whether you walked into a restaurant or a retail store, hotel, everywhere, hand sanitizer use was mandatory. Masks were provided to everybody in the country every single day. So there was a certain time that you would walk to your local pharmacy and they had a mask available for you to grab on your way to work. So every day, everybody was wearing a mask. I think walking around, probably 70% of people were wearing masks in public, maybe higher. And as a result, the economy didn't shut down. They, they never had to go through this whole lockdown like we have here in the United States because they were prepared. They, they knew what they were doing. And they've only had, I think, something like 40 or 50 community cases and then a, a couple hundred more that have come in from other countries, like from Europe and from the United States. But in a country that's only something like 90 miles off the, the coast of China, they were remarkable at how well they controlled the coronavirus. So I, I got to see it firsthand. And they, I mean, everything was open. Like we, we went out to restaurants in the evening, like, you know, went out to a lounge, you know, all those kinds of things. And everything was open. People were out. There was no quarantine and they controlled it much better than we did. So Is it frustrating to watch us here then after seeing that? It is. Yeah. 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 I mean, I feel like it's not that complicated. I mean, I know we're a bigger country, but we had more time to prepare. So it's, it's pretty disappointing that we haven't done a better job as a country. But I do think it was pretty remarkable. And I, I think all the economic impacts of the virus, obviously, besides the human toll and all, all the devastation in terms of all the people dying, but you know, even all the economic turmoil and the you know, Great Recession and all that we're experiencing, all of that was avoidable if we had handled it right in the first place. Mm-hmm. So that is, uh, it is really, really sad that we haven't done a better job as a country. I think we can just hope that like Taiwan, they learned from their previous experiences what needed to happen next time. Right, right. And maybe maybe we will learn from our yeah, experiences yeah. how to handle it. Maybe, I hope there isn't a next time, but... Yeah, yeah. And then I, th- I think the other thing I've seen with COVID is just how resilient and how sort of willing everybody, especially I feel like in the Bay Area, like we have done a really good job relatively, you know, to controlling the spread of the virus. And, and I think also just how resilient my staff has been and they've continued to do everything they can from home and we've kind of worked it out where I so I haven't furloughed anybody we've we've kept everybody on at their full pay and then we later figured this summer as things are able to ramp up again we'll work a little longer hours just to accommodate the patients that that need to come in for things so that's kind of how we have sort of handled it Mm -hmm. but yeah it's been it's been challenging but we're, we're all kind of figuring it out together I think having that work from home component I think will also be like as we talked about virtual consultations I think working remotely is going to be more of a thing, not just in tech companies, but also in everyone, everyone. Yeah. yeah medical offices. We all. noted a distinct improvement in doctors, zoom skills over the last six weeks. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> We've been using it for like a year and a half. So we were already there, but uh, yeah, that's been fun. So you listen to the podcast, you know, the last question that I ask everyone. So before we wrap it up for the day, I want to ask what is your unique superpower? 
Yeah, I think I would say patience, probably. I think both because of having a two-year-old and a six-year-old, my patient is... Uh, they will do that to you. Put to the test sometimes. Yeah. But uh, yeah, you can you can speak to that. But I would say, I think with rhinoplasty in particular, to get really good, consistent, solid, excellent results, I think you have to take your time. I don't think it's a surgery you can rush through and do a 30-minute nose job and call it a day. I, for me, I think getting good, consistent, solid, predictable, long-term, stable results, it takes three or four hours. And sometimes I'll it'll be three hours into a case starting to close and I'll notice a small asymmetry or something that needs to be adjusted. So I'll open the nose up and you know work for another 30 minutes. Whereas you know everybody else in the room is like, okay, I, I think we're done now. You know, I think it's it really takes that sort of perfectionism and care for that patient that's on the table. And you know, you can't be concerned about the Botox patient that's waiting in the office because you're you know running along in surgery. So so I think that as a I think having that patience to make sure that you're getting the best possible results you can get for your patients, I think is is quite important. It's a good superpower. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks. Thank you for sharing your stories with us today. We really appreciate you taking the time. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. This was a blast. Thanks for listening to the Real Self University podcast. The mission of Real Self is to create a world where every investment in modern beauty is worth it. And Real Self University is here to help aesthetic professionals do just that. The mission of our podcast is to uncover stories and data from our industry's most interesting and successful personalities. If you'd like to be a guest on the Real Self University podcast, have feedback or questions, email university at realself.com. Support us and help us keep this effort going by subscribing to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you'd like more information about becoming Real Self Verified, go to realself.com slash network and enter referral code podcast to receive 50% off your first full month of Real Self Spotlights. I'm your host and producer, Eva Shea. Our post-production is by Daniel Cruiser. All of our learning and practice development resources are available on demand at university.realself.com.